0: Okay, so this session is called Insights from the Frontiers of Collective Intelligence. We've got four of our 12 grantees up here this morning, and they are going to tell you a little bit about their collective intelligence design experiments. So we've been incredibly mean, and we've given them just five minutes to talk about the problem that their experiment is addressing, what their experiment involves, some of the emerging findings, and why any of it matters. We were going to introduce some jeopardy into the proceedings by having a gong that would sound when the time was up, but unfortunately the gong has gone missing, so they're <laughs> slightly, <laughs> slightly less <laughs> <laughs> <of us. laughs> But that doesn't mean you can overrun, because my colleague Joe is at the front, and will give you um, the evil eye. <laughs> um, now, after each of their pitches, I'm going to put a quick question to them, and then when they've all presented, I'm going to open it up to all of you, to quiz them, to interrogate them but nicely please because we're all friends and to suggest any other opportunities that you might be able to see from their work. Now the 12 experiments that we're currently funding fall into four broad categories. The first category is improving collective decision making. Now we all know that making decisions together is sometimes really hard, and it's even harder when opinions are really polarised or problems are very complex, and people just can't agree on solutions or way forwards. So we think it's actually really important that we're investing in new ways to think and decide collectively together, and that's exactly what four of our grantees are doing. Now, you heard from Rachel from Fanshen, Uh, They are one of the grantees in that category. They're a Newcastle-based theatre company, and they're investigating the importance of empathy and metacognition skills in improving collective decision-making. And they're also testing to see whether those skills can be developed through immersive digital storytelling, working with school pupils in the northeast of England. Their breakout (laughs) session today is called the Justice Syndicate, and I have to say I really personally highly recommend it, Uh, so do go if you can. Get there early. A second grantee in this category is the Artificial Intelligence Lab uh, based in Brussels. And they're testing whether introducing AI agents into collective group discussions around risks, such as climate change, can actually help us get to better decisions. Now, two of the grantees from the category are on stage with me today. The first person I'm gonna ask to speak is David Baltax. So David is the President and Chief Intelligence Officer of Unanimous AI. They're a California-based company focusing on amplifying the intelligence of human groups using AI technology modeled on swarm behavior. Now, for the experiment that David is sharing today, they've worked closely with Professor Talbot, Colin Talbot from uh, the University of Cambridge, and Professor Mark Bergman and Alexandru Marocci from Imperial College in London. David, over to you.
1: Good morning. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, that kind introduction, and it's great to be here with you today. Um, First, very quickly, uh, in addition to the colleagues uh, uh, that Kathy mentioned, I also want to quickly mention the team in the U.S. that worked on this project, Dr. Lewis Rosenberg, uh, Greg Wilcox, and Mimi Lyons. Thank you. It's one of those Academy Awards issues you have to make sure you get taken care of. Yes, so uh, we amplify the intelligence of human groups. Um, The problem Kathy uh, asked asked me to first address is this broad problem of why did we want to address what what issue do we want to address? And it's no surprise that we live in an incredibly polarized uh, time right now, both from political discourse to social discourse, from top to bottom within our societies um, worldwide. Can we do something about this? Well, we actually uh, took the approach of seeing if we can apply our artificial swarm intelligence, or swarm AI technologies that we've developed, to empower groups with conflicting political views to find more satisfactory outcomes and to do this in a very efficient manner. We come at this from a time where we have actually spent uh, a few years developing our swarm AI technology and improving it out in other areas, where uh, we have had uh, success in more utilitarian, uh, generally financially incented uh, activities, where people and divergent groups that have different financial incentives have been able to come together and be able to find optimal outcomes incredibly quickly uh, in ways that are mutually beneficial. Can we, we took that as a starting point to see if we could take that and move it into more of social realms and into this political discourse. To take a step back about what is swarm intelligence. Swarm intelligence is a phenomenon that's been studied for decades in biological environments in which uh, uh, social organisms, such as fi- schools of fish, or excuse me, fish, birds, um, and in our case bees, form these superorganisms, these closed systems where they work together to be able to solve problems that, that individually they could not. We've taken that and applied the lessons that we could derive from the way in which these superorganisms interact and solve problems, in our case specifically the swarming behavior of honeybees, and applied that in the development of swarm AI algorithms that allow humans to work together in similar principles. And so in very, very quick uh, and efficient systems, be able to have these different groups work together online. So our experiment here was to take, we began uh, looking in the US market, of course, when we engaged with um, thinking about Democrats and Republicans. When we engaged with Nesta, uh, the, the move to labor and conservative was, uh, unfortunately, an easy one. Um, and we tasked these, uh, these groups of labor and conservatives to set priorities uh, with the U, uh, for the UK government on three sets of hot-button issues that we worked with our collaborators uh, at the universities here in the UK um, to identify. So we were able to come up with some very uh, divergent and polarizing issues and be able to present that to these groups. And we did this allowing the uh, participants to do so individually for them to register their opinions individually and together with I- as swarms within uh, the swarm environment, the swarm AI environment. We did this with um, uh, participants who were in the swarm as well as control groups. Uh, we referred to them as the out group. Um, and then we were able to assemble or aggregate their results via majority vote and board account, which are two very popular uh, ways in which the political system counts today. And within the swarm environment and then test on satisfaction. Our hypotheses were that we would see greater satisfaction in the results of the swarm-based lists and greater satisfaction among participants in the swarm environment. We also hypothesized that there'd be improvements in satisfaction would not be impacted by group size and the mix of the participants. So this is a, uh, a replay of what it looks like of a group to go through this process. Each of these horseshoe magnets is being controlled by one of the 20 people who are participating. They were tasked with examining these six issues and defining, putting them into order. And they define them first by identifying which is going to be the lowest priority, Then they selected that choice. In this case, they eventually come to globalization. We remove that choice. We re-ask the question, and we complete that cycle until they have narrowed it down to uh, put them in order until we get to two two selections. This is the replay of the top two selections, um, Brexit and income inequality. And the question now was changed for them to identify what was the highest priority you can see very quickly that they arrived that Brexit should be the highest priority by a lot. The results of all of this, and um, be happy to discuss this in greater detail since we have such a a short amount of time now. Um, We'll be able to talk about greater detail at the poster session um, uh, later this afternoon. Um, But the results are that the swarm method uh, did produce rankings that were perceived by both the participants, the in-group and by our control groups as being more satisfactory than the majority vote method, one of the most popular uh, voting methods. The board account and swarm methods so far show uh, very similar perceptions, and that we didn't see any significant differences in satisfaction so far between uh, the two different groups of participants. Again, this is preliminary data. We're continuing to um, crunch on these numbers, and actually we'll have more finalized numbers in the next few weeks. Why does this matter? I think it's self-evident, we we need a better solution moving forward if we can apply AI and CI in any particular combination, um, it's worthwhile. Thanks, David. Um,
0: Before you sit back down, can you just briefly explain how participants communicate and interact during the swarm process that you just showed on screen?
1: Sure. And I'll go back to this replay to to be able to talk. Um, There are two most important issues that need to be recognized when you kind of try to understand what is actually happening in this process. Um, The first is that this group is tasked with finding an optimal answer. They are working together. They are not talking to one another um, outside of this. They are actually, this is really this tangible negotiation that is all they see on the screen are their magnets and everybody else's magnets. They set their magnet at the very beginning during that 3-2-1, and that position, what they initially pull for, is their top of mind answer. It's what you would see in a poll, in a survey. But then they're challenged, and they must consider what their level of conviction or passion is in their answer, or their level of confidence in their answer. The two extremes, of course, are if they have an incredibly high level of conviction, There's no other choice. They will not move. They will continue to pull for just their top choice the entire time. Somebody at the other end of the spectrum who doesn't have a um, strong sense of conviction will move around and, frankly, doesn't really care too much about what answer that they're going to pick. Most people are in between. And it's that level of conviction that dictates when and how they are going to change their positions. The other thing that's critical to know is that this looks very simplistic. This looks like a video game that just is a tug of war. What you don't see is the invisible hand of the AI that is actually monitoring all of these behaviors in real time, and that is constantly changing the physics of the environment to help the group come to an optimal decision. So I'm going to leave it there. Again, it's an invisible hand. Uh, The AI part is the invisible hand. But this is a a true combination of the psychology of, uh, of the humans that is working within a closed system with the technology.
0: Thank you, David. I can see some hands up. Please hold those thoughts. There will be an opportunity for a round of questions once everyone's presented. And also, I should say, there is a poster session over lunch where all 12 of our grantees will be outside. And you'll be able to go and chat to all of them uh, and ask them any other questions that you have. David, thank you. you. Our next grantee is Vito Triani. Vito's a researcher at the Italian National Research Council. He works for the Institute for Cognitive Sciences and Technologies. And like David, he's also an expert in swarm intelligence. He studied um, decision-making, collective decision-making in both artificial and natural groups, and he's now applying his knowledge to improving human group decision-making. Vito, your turn.
2: Thanks a lot, Cathy, for the introduction, (coughs) and welcome to everybody. So, uh, quickly, my experiment targets group decisions in situations in which there is an objective answer like in a medical diagnostic when a group of physicians has to come together to find the, the best uh, answer, the right disease given a set of symptoms. Now in this, what we are looking at is also the possibility of social feedback within these groups. People interact to reach a shared outcome, a shared decision. In these conditions, there are a number of different ways in which the decision can go wrong. For instance, some individuals may overly attract attention and bias the group decision toward a maybe wrong answer. And uh, in this context, minority opinions can go largely unattended. And even if they may lead to the the correct answer. So this is what happens when there is social feedback in group decision. And uh, there are negative effects that can come out from individual and social biases. What we are looking at are Two particular aspects, that is overconfidence, when there is someone that sticks too much to some uh, um, opinion, to some uh, alternative without taking into account all the possible uh, information that he has. And the other one is herding, that is the tendency of uh, individuals to going along uh, with the rest of the group. This, we believe, is worsened when there is unstructured information exchange. So what we are testing in our experiments is structuring the information exchange and having a multi-agent system mediate the interactions within the group. So what it is a multi-agent system? You can think this as um, artificial intelligence made of multiple agents that are autonomous. These are simple probabilistic algorithms, small pieces of codes, that can somehow take decisions observing the outer environment and can provide feedback also to the outer environment. So in practice, our little agents observe the opinions of the users in the group, and they may change their status by endorsing one or the other opinion. This will give a feedback to the group that can take into account this feedback and maybe someone would uh, would change their opinion and this process goes along in a loop. And uh, we have to say that these agents are programmed to reach consensus at some point, and this will influence the opinion that is uh, shared within the group. Um, hopefully we will reach to a consensus at some point. the agents will reach consensus, but also the humans will reach cons- may reach consensus. and we hope that this will lead to better decisions overall. So what we are practically doing are online experiments in collaboration with the the Universidad Carlos Cercero de Madrid with uh, Ancho Sanchez and Alberto Antonioni. And we are giving our uh, crowd uh, a number of different problems. One of these is a perceptual decision problem in which uh, individuals have to identify sharks that are hiding within a school of tunas. So if you try to see where the sharks are, it's pretty difficult. Well, these are the shark silhouettes. And uh, in our experiments we give, we give five different displays of this kind and what the people have to do, have to identify the display that has more sharks. Um, then people receive some social information. We have three different kinds of social information. They can see the choice that is made by others. They can see a rating information that people are invited to, to provide that uh, correlates basically the rating the number of starts correlates with the number of sharks that people see. And finally, there is a the treatment in which the uh, the crowd interacts with the multi agent system. We are testing two hypotheses mainly, we want to see what are the effects of a structured information, which is in this case is represented by the rating because different people rate the what they observe with a different scale. And also, of course, we are testing the effects of uh, having a multi-agent system as a mediator. This is how the um, interface of this online uh, experiment looks like, you see there are five different buttons that correspond to five different displays. And there is a the social information that is provided with the hearts and stars. The hearts represent the choice, the stars represent the average rating given by the other people in the group. And, uh, Mm, While interacting with with the system, people can see the display for just a few seconds, try to make up their mind about how many sharks they've seen, and then can rate the option on a five-star scale. And Then they can choose or not whether they want to select that option or other options at their current best. And This goes on for multiple rounds until we hope to see the convergence of the group uh, on one of the options, and then we we give the feedback to the group about whether they were successful or not. These are some preliminary results. We are comparing a treatment in which individuals are playing alone with treatments in which different levels of social information are given. And what we see is that uh, collective intelligence is actually uh, observable here. There, are, there is actually an increase in performance in the accuracy when uh, they can see the choice of others, but the uh, unstructured information of the rating. Treatment is not uh, playing for good, uh, uh, and actually the system I- the is uh, having uh, lower performance. What we are doing right now is, of course, analyzing more the data that we obtained, and also we are trying to, uh, we are implementing, we are testing the multi-agent system. What we have to observe is that, thanks to the mediation of the multi-agent system, the accuracy will go up. So that's all.
0: Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Vito. So, Vito, at the moment, this is very much a lab-based hypothetical study. Is this going to have application in a real-world context?
2: Yes. I have to say that uh, the main implication of uh, our finding will be that we need to carefully design the way in which social information is provided uh, to groups, because unstructured information can be uh, really detrimental. And we have seen that we've seen this in our experiment, but also with David system, we see this nice interaction design that uh, allows people to interact in a different way. And uh, this different possibilities of interaction can really boost the collective intelligence. And for what concern applications, what I think is that there are a lot of uh, situations, both in uh, citizen, uh, um, citizen participation and also in health, that can uh, um, exploit such a platform or such knowledge in order to improve the, the collective decision. And um, in practice, I would like really to work with the health sector to see whether we can use this kind of insights for medical diagnostics.
0: Great. Thank you very much. So, our second category of experiments is around making better use of the insights that are generated from citizen, uh, that are generated through collective intelligence. Now... As crowds generate increasing amounts of data, the challenge becomes one of how to analyze and make better use of the insights from that data. We've got four grantees who are using machine learning to extract novel insights from large volumes of citizen-generated data. And they're also testing to see how doing that affects the uptake and use by a range of different institutions. The Alan Turing Institute is testing whether natural language processing can help citizens on the Consul digital democracy platform to organize more effectively together. HurriDocs is a human rights organization, and they're testing whether machine learning can help human rights defenders to more efficiently and effectively curate large collections of documents. Belgian-based company Citizen Lab is using machine learning to translate citizen-generated ideas on a digital democracy platform into actionable policy recommendations for public authorities. Now, our fourth grantee in this category is on stage today. Yvonne McDermott-Reese is from Swansea University. Yvonne has been working for this experiment with GLAN, the Global Legal Action Network, and Syrian Archive. I think Dervla uh, from Glan and Jeff from Syrian Archive are somewhere in the audience. They've also been collaborating closely with Enrique Parachez from Carnegie Mellon University and Hurrydocs, another of our grantees. Okay. Everyone,
3: thanks, Kathy. Um, There we go. Um, So our experiment is looking at the use of collective intelligence for documenting mass human rights violations and using that evidence in accountability processes. So for this particular project, we've been looking at Yemen, but I think, uh, well, I hope as we go on, we'll see that this has uh, broader applicability. Um, So as you're probably aware, increasingly, Um, Advances in technology have allowed people on the ground in the context of mass human rights violations to pick up their mobile phones and record what they're seeing, crimes against humanity, war crimes, other mass human rights violations. Um, And this type of citizen evidence is hugely important in an era where investigators are often denied access to the countries involved. Um, But one of the problems that arises with this kind of evidence is the sheer volume of it, literally terabytes of data in some contexts. So, um, And and the other part of it is ensuring that this uh, evidence can ultimately be used in accountability processes. So with this in mind, our experiment seeks to address two interrelated issues. One is whether a collective intelligence approach can be used in terms of um, analyzing and filtering that huge volume of content uh, to identify the most relevant and important evidence for uh, accountability processes. And the second is uh, looking at whether uh, these tools can be used to help to collect and preserve and analyze the uh, type of evidence that is generated in this way. So on the first side of this, um, Jeff from Syrian Archive and his colleagues have been working on using machine learning to detect uh, cluster munitions. Um, and, and other context, but it, we'll just talk about cluster munitions today. Um, so this is hugely challenging. As you can see from the picture at the right hand side, cluster munitions are effectively a series of small components, and then there are issues about the angle of the picture. Um, dirt can, can obscure these. Uh, and the other issue that arises with trying to use machine learning to uh, detect them is the lack of available good training data. So to this end, they developed uh, 3D synthetic images that can be used to create a 3D model, which can then be used to uh, generate synthetic images using different, for example, weather uh, context or quality of images to train the algorithm to become more accurate. And the second side of this is so in an ideal world, people gathering this citizen evidence would use specific platforms that are designed to help preserve human rights um, evidence. Of evidence of human rights violations, but um, in, in reality they use platforms that aren't specifically designed for this, so typically YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Um, so in order to preserve this content, because it can often be taken down either by the original user or by the platforms themselves, uh, Enrique from the project has developed this tool called the Digital Evidence Vault. So the Digital Evidence Vault effectively scrapes the data, saves it securely, and uses blockchain technology to stamp So we can show if we're using it in court later, this hasn't been tampered with in any way. Um, and then we integrated in this project the digital evidence vault with a tool called Uwazi, which was developed by Huridoc. So Uwazi is a platform for curating mixed um, types of uh, mixed masses of evidence. So someone like Dervla can say, okay, I've saved all these images or these videos using digital evidence vault, and she can save them in her library, and then that can be combined with traditional forms of evidence, maybe a witness statement or something else that corroborates the content that um, that that evidence speaks to. So Uazi actually has a machine learning component where it can say, um, oh, this looks to be related to this incident that you've tagged it with, and suggest um, to the human rights investigator ways of collecting that evidence and um, managing it. So all told, um, We are convinced that using these kinds of tools can help in um, enabling human rights investigators to use this citizen evidence um, effectively in accountability processes. Um, I think it's important to emphasize that the Machines will never take over completely. We'll always need the human human rights investigator or lawyer to say, okay, this is relevant and this relates to this and this is how we're going to introduce it in court. But in a sense, these kinds of tools can make life a lot easier in dealing with these huge volumes of evidence that uh, are generated in this way for us, the next step in our project is we're testing our second hypothesis. We're looking really at the barriers to information sharing in the context of human rights violations and whether some of these tools can uh, assist in this way. Um, so that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Yvonne.
0: <laughs> so Yvonne, one of the hypotheses that you're testing and one of the things that really attracted us to your experiment was the idea of potentially this crowdsourced data that's been curated through machine intelligence being used and being made admissible in a legal context. Mm-hmm. What do you think the chances are of courts actually using yes. this evidence? Yes.
3: So we're really in sort of unchartered territory here when we're talking about using this kind of evidence in court. There are small pockets of examples from Germany and from some international criminal uh, courts, but we're still sort of testing this out. But I think, again, I would emphasise that these tools are, are there to assist the, the person, the human rights investigator. So it's not like um, the algorithm says, oh, look, from these 100 videos, we have 20 where we've de- uh, detected cluster munitions, and then that goes straight to court. No, someone like Dervla comes and says, OK, I've now got these 20 videos. How can I use that in shaping the case that I'm trying to put before the court? So I think that human element will, will assist in this way.
0: Great, thank you. you. So the third category of experimentation is around increasing the effectiveness and participation of citizens in collective intelligence projects. And it's probably really obvious, but it's also really hard to do to keep citizens engaged and motivated and contributing and participating effectively. So we've got two grantees who are in this category. We've got the University of Southampton, who are testing different strategies to sustain crowdsourced analysis of drone footage in humanitarian and emergency responses, and we've got the University of Edinburgh who are comparing two different types of intelligent recommendation systems on a citizen science platform. And what they're looking to see is whether it can more effectively match citizen science volunteers with the sorts of projects that make best use of their interests and their existing capabilities. So the fourth and final category of collective intelligence experiments in this round is new use cases for collective intelligence. We have two grantees in this category. The first is the Behavioural Insights <laughs> team based here in London. They're working with an online mass assessment platform called EDI to see whether a collective intelligence approach can actually help us unlock and identify what makes effective teacher feedback our final presenter is Daisy Tam. Daisy's an assistant professor at Hong Kong Baptist University. For this experiment, she has worked with Thomas Holderness from MIT's Urban Risk Lab and Mart van der Ven from Druster, a Hong Kong-based data science consultancy.
4: thank you Cathy and thank you all for being here um, hey today's world food day which makes it um, <laughs> which makes it a really good opportunity for me to talk about my work um, the project is couched in in urban environments so i'm interested in how cities feed themselves how they deal with waste and also How can we better prepare cities so that the population have safe and healthy and sustainable food sources to sustain an active life? Cities are interesting places. They are crowded, they are densely populated, they are well-connected, which makes it an ideal environment to test the power of the crowd. The project um, that we're working on looks to extend the uh, extend crowdsourcing beyond the collecting of information and data to the movement of physical goods for the, uh, for the wider good. Um, and we think we can achieve that by enabling crowds to self-organize and to do real-time collaboration so that we can better mobilize skills and resources. We have food systems that produces both, both waste and hunger. In the case of Hong Kong, we throw away 3,600 tons of food every day to landfill, which is equivalent to 250 double-decker buses. All at the same time, 20% of the population live in poverty, with three pounds for three meals a day. With increasing climate uh, events, we are witnessing uh, fluctuations in food prices because of the supply chain. And uh, we've already witnessed two price hikes due to weather events. So in this kind of context, food rescue becomes one of the means in which to provide uh, the socially vulnerable uh, resilience and also uh, food security. But they are faced with many challenges. The temporal and spatial challenge for food rescue is, is, is the first. So in my case study, I have 240 bakeries spread all across the city and a window of two hours to collect all of the surpluses. So how do you effectively um, gather all of the surpluses in such a small time window? Currently, NGOs organize and recruit volunteers and organize and assign (coughs) them tasks, uh, which is very labor-intensive and very manual. Um, What we've seen then is um, uh, very labor-intensive for the NGOs themselves, but it's also a very high time cost for (coughs) participants. What we developed um, with Breadline is a decentralized system where we connect volunteers directly to donor bakeries so that they could pick up the surpluses um, for the NGOs, for their beneficiaries. Volunteers themselves can self select tasks based on what is easy for them instead of being assigned by the organization. They can also choose where they go based on um, their day their day-to-day commute. So this allows uh, a much more sort of uh, flexible reaction to something like, what uh, currently NGOs are using, which is non shareable information, non changeable action. And the next problem that we see very often with food rescue is fluctuating availability. Um, at any given day, about 20 to 30 percent of the bakeries sell out, and you never know which one. So there are a lot of cases where we see volunteers with empty runs, which is also a waste of time and resources. Um, What Breadline also does is collaborate with the bakeries so that the shop staff enter an approximate amount of bread left over an hour before closing so that volunteers can see it and then they can react to it. Um, They can choose to go to another place if there's not a lot of bread left in their chosen um, bakery, or they could go somewhere else um, depending on that situation. So this is uh, Breadline in Action where... They could also then, when they arrive at the bakery, uh, the amount of bread that is collected and gets entered directly into Breadline, which is then directly shared to the NGOs themselves. So that streamlines a lot of the reporting processes. Um, with networked intelligent actions, as we see it, um, what we have preliminarily uh, seen is that we are four times more volunteer efficient. We have one and uh, 1.5 times increase in donor base without extra cost to the NGOs themselves. Um, and we are seeing higher impact pickups. So every visit that volunteer goes to can collect a- um, more bread from each branch. Um, the idea of um, having networked intelligent actions um, really is, 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 a, is a form of decentralized system which enables the crowd to act. Um, it creates a collective, which is purposeful, which is transient, um, but which can, which is also scalable. Um, we are hoping that in thinking about the crowd and a new collective in such a way that we are able to achieve more, to not only see more but do more, and so that the sum is bigger than uh, the sum is bigger than its parts. And I have Tom and Mart to thank for making this project. Um, a a reality. Marta's just behind there. Thank you.
0: Daisy, the the type of transient, distributed, leaderless organizing Mm. that your platform is facilitating has really interesting parallels with uh, the organizing that we've seen uh, being done by the Hong Kong protest movement. (laughs) Is this type of organizing something that's very culturally specific to Hong Kong, do Mm. you think? And uh, is your platform only good for rescuing leftover bread?
4: Um, Very good questions. So let me start with um, the the second question. Um, Absolutely not only for bread um, and not only for food rescue. Uh, One of my partners, Tom Holderness, uh, was also presenting his uh, project on Petitjip Benchana, which is the flood reporting um, platform. And so in our minds, um, this platform has application also in humanitarian disaster relief situations where there are resources in one place and needs in another, and how can we sort of verify that information and allow peer-to-peer kind of help. The second question about the crowd is extremely interesting because of not only what's happening right now in Hong Kong, but also um, I've been observing these kind of new movements, new collectives being formed through and enabled by social media in the way that it changes um, sort of collective actions. So in the old way, one could think that old forms of collective actions happen with a shared ideology. Then you get, enter into a group membership, and then you sort of act collectively together. And right now, with um, the kind of uh, information um, shared in in, in, in such uh, distributed ways, people are able to participate in their own capacity in a very flexible manner, creating these kind of um, transient loose collectives but then collect but then collectively yeah I, I think this this is a very powerful force um which can be seen yeah not only in in my platform or in hong kong but also observed elsewhere
0: thank you and we've seen i think some of that in some of the movements around me too black lives matter black lives matter mm. around the world not just in hong kong Absolutely. thank you thank and you. thank you to all of our grantees for presenting actually what a really complex <laughs> experiment in a very short space of time so I'm now going to open it up for questions uh, brief comments uh, or opportunities that you can see from some of our grantees work I will do it as a round of questions we've probably got about 10 minutes for questions but there is lots of time a whole hour over the lunch time for you to go and talk to all of our grantees individually uh, if you have questions for any specific individual please do say who your question is directed to and when you ask your question please do also introduce yourself who you are uh, and where you're from there's a question from a lady at the back um, and then a gentleman behind her and then I'll take two more questions from here in the front row the gentleman and the lady The red light's still on. Yeah, but
5: like it's,
0: it's Would you like to come to the front? <laughs>
3: Is there any evidence behind that or is that an assumption because I would imagine there might also be a tendency in some people to act more collegiately than others and therefore you know, they may be making that decision feeling that they're doing the right thing for the group as opposed to through a lack of conviction. And I suppose linked to that there may be gender differences in people's decision making. Okay. Thank you.
0: So. If you can just hold on. Um, thank you. Uh, so that's a question about uh, whether David is making an assumption there about whether people don't hold strong convictions and, in fact, have a greater propensity to be collegiate uh, in coming to a, c- a conclusion. Uh, it was the gentleman behind, yes.
5: Uh, hi, I'm Joe Ravitz from Manchester University. Um, question to all, but uh, particularly to uh, Daisy, uh, and I liked very much your Uh, story of of the food waste in Hong Kong, and then as an analyst of similar systems such as uh, Uber, Airbnb, etc. In other words, uh, self-organising platform type systems uh, with great flexibility. uh, One has to ask, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, And we can see with Uber, well, quite a lot, for example, and the kickback against Airbnb is very strong in many cities. Now, Saving food waste is clearly a wonderful thing to do. But is anyone asking the question, could this affect the overall food supply, or the system, the marketplace, uh, the value of food, uh, and so on and so on?
0: Okay, fantastic. Daisy, I'm going to ask you to come back then on potential unintended consequences. Uh, two at the front, yes.
3: Mine's a bit like the first one for David. Uh, sorry, Julia Sykes, KHDA. Um It looked when those magnets were moving around in the first thing that gender um, disparity was a a big pull by a very focused group of people and then there was a sort of general uh, pull in all the other directions and then it moved to a completely different topic. So my question is how influential is that artificial intelligence in herding and uh, joining sort of mild foes into a more uh, obvious focus.
0: Okay, that's how much is the AI influencing that change of hearts? Um, yeah, great.
1: Hello, Stephen Boxall from Regeneration X. Another one for David, I'm afraid, the political <laughs> parties working together question. Um, it can be argued that people at the right of the Labour Party and people of the left of the Conservative Party actually have very similar views. So are you really just finding the views of the centre agree with each other. And what would happen if you talk people at the extreme left and extreme right and try to get them to uh, reach some sort of consensus?
0: OK, lovely, thank you. I'm going to ask then David to answer those three questions and then Daisy to come back on her question. And then I'm going to open it up to again for another round of questions. But please, questions to Vito and Yvonne, if that's OK. Oh,
1: be on. Yep. Yeah. OK. Um, so uh, some of these questions are actually related. So um, the first piece, though, I do want to point out, and I'll address this third question uh, first, is that um, we had a very limited scope in what we could examine. And actually, the, uh, so the, n- the number of variables that we were able to, to uh, manage in this particular experiment um, we're limited. So we, we used a broad spectrum of uh, political, can, uh, political affiliation, um, political um, passion, conviction, and actually to this question about gender uh, as well. Um, we did actually uh, track for gender, and I know that we're looking at that right now um, uh, in, the, uh, in the data analysis. The, so in particular, I think what you're describing actually is a very interesting... Um, additional line of research of, of being able to actually look to see are we finding um, what would happen if we had more extreme points of view we actually think we had a fairly extreme group um, and we designed those questions in order to highlight that polarization um, the purpose is to find that overlap that purpose is to find those places of um, optimization and agreement, where um, the uh, people's differing levels of, uh, of conviction or uh, interest can start to to find middle ground. Um, the the uh, I'm trying to remember the second question. Uh, I, I've got the first one. And I think, that it was, remember, it's very closely related. The second question had to do with gender, specifically? No, it
0: was about how much influence is, did the, uh, AI the AI have yeah, yeah. on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right.
1: That's why they were related. So. Um, The AI is looking and and monitoring for actually a a, a huge number of variables, a huge number of issues. Happy to talk about more, more specifics on that. But its main goal is to, as I mentioned, to try and identify the level of confidence and conviction that's being expressed among the participants and be able to assist them in finding that middle ground, find that, that best area. And so that actually goes to that question about um, uh, empirical research um, amongst a lot of different variables. And again, we have quite a bit of published information on those items. But what comes through repeatedly is that um, the, if you have a high level of passion or confidence or conviction in your answer, you are going to be unmoved. We see this across the board. And yes, there is, for those people who have a spirit of equanimity, a spirit of trying to find the optimiz- uh, optimal choice, that is what the AI is really trying to foster. And it is a really interesting psychological question uh, that we have to, to mediate. And that is, um, if we task the group, and we have to remember that the group is actually tasked at the outset to find an optimal solution. Okay, So there is that broader context. Um, you will find people who perhaps are more extreme who are not willing to play that game, who are not willing to compromise. Um, and that is actually an interesting issue that you have within curating swarms and setting up the environment of people who are going to participate. Uh, but to get into some more of those, those details, we should take that outside and, and go into those level of, of detail.
0: Thank you. I think it's also important to mention, though, that one of the things that's interesting about the experiment is not just do people get to a consensus, But actually, do they uh, feel happier that the group has come to a conclusion, even if it wasn't the original uh, preference or decision that they would personally have liked?
1: Um, can I just add this quickly? And again, the the goal of this research, we talk a lot about, and there's a lot of focus on that initial decision. But what that did is it created a list. And the, the real finding here was that that list was considered to be more satisfactory than the ordered list from other methodologies. And that was from people who didn't participate in the swarm as well. And that's the, the the leap. That is the additional finding that we did in this particular research, was that the outcome was more generalizable.
0: Thank you. And Daisy, unintended consequences.
4: Um, so <coughs> testing. Um, thank you for your question. I. I think most of the um, kind of cases studying uh, crowdsourcing, you taking Uber and all these as examples, um, the critique would be that they are more crowd fleecing rather than crowdsourcing. Yeah. So often critique about yeah power ownership and, and um, advantages. Redline, um, luckily, do not face that at this current instant because the, the goal is um, it's not a business model, uh, for one. Um, and then the other, and also, the, the point about food rescue, uh, an unintended consequence of food rescue, and then thereby facilitating that, is that it is that it, it seems to be something that works itself. The goal is working itself to um, obsolescence. So really, if they do it so well, then there is no need for them to exist. And that's a really good problem to have. Um, however, I think in achieving, <laughs> I don't think we are very close to that at all. But also in that pursuit of that journey, I think what is enabled in all these processes is that how do we shift the nature of collaboration? How do we um, um, break down institutional barriers and proprietorship um, barriers in order to uh, make resources shareable um, in, that, in that small amount of time? Um, and so all of these things, I think, are valuable. Uh, that will push us a little bit further in, in this question of collective action. Um, And also, yeah, finally, I mean, we do observe already that given the feedback and response to tell the donors how much bread we have taken um, from their branches, they've actually produced less. So we are seeing, um, because they see how much they're actually wasting, so they're like, oh, thanks for that. You know, I'm going to make less. So there'll be a bit less um, left over at the end of every day.
0: Thank you. Yvonne, you said you wanted to come in on this.
3: Yes. we're on. Um, no, I just I wanted to come in on this issue of unintended consequences because I think it's a it's a mm. wonderful question, something that we all have to be so mindful of. Um, in in my research on the use of this citizen evidence, it's something that's really come to the fore is that. Um, well, of course, it's wonderful. We, we need this kind of evidence to prove human rights violations. Um, but there, there is a, a hidden side, an unintended consequence side, which is that this kind of evidence is wonderful for proving certain types of human rights violations. But there are other war crimes, crimes against humanity that are hidden. Uh, in, when we look at this kind of evidence. Sexual violence, starvation as a weapon of war, uh, a, a whole range. And, and so there's an issue there about what kind of stories are, are being told to, through this kind of evidence, and more importantly, perhaps, who's telling them. So who has access to the technology to be able to share this kind of evidence? And uh, But we're finding in, in the research we're doing that increasingly NGOs are feeling under pressure, in a sense, to... Uh, add to the, maybe they've collected witness statements, which used to be the gold standard in evidence, uh, but they've been under pressure to be like, "Mm, have you got a video that shows us that in a sexy kind of way? You know, um, so so I think it's a really, really uh, critical issue uh, with any type of, when we're we're talking about any kind of technological advance, but in this space particularly.
0: Thank you. Now, I've actually been told we've only got one minute left. So I am very sorry to those people who... Did have questions lined up? Please do use the lunch break. There's a whole hour, as I said, to go and talk to our grantees. They'll be standing by their posters, uh, so feel free to go and chat to them. And please, final uh, reminder just one week left to apply for this round of grants. Um, And finally, it is the break now. Uh, There's a half an hour break. Grab yourselves tea and coffee. We'll be back in here at 11 o'clock for a session around collective intelligence in cities. If you are wanting to go to one of the breakout sessions, please do go and look at the boards outside. Check which room you're in and make sure that you're there in good time. Thank
5: you.